Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, here we go. Welcome in, everybody. It's David Summers and another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America is told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. Now we step back into the ring, back into time, into the Great Smoky Mountains where there ain't no hoss like the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What's up, my man, Ron? Oh, man, just uh, ready to roll, my man. Got a real good one for him today, and uh, got a pretty decent day here in the Smokies. And, uh, just enjoying being here, man, the great state of Tennessee. So what's it looking like lately? We we know that every time we talk to you, the, the, when wherever you are in the Smoky Mountains, it looks different depending on what day it is, really, because of the atmospheric conditions, that kind of thing. What's going on now? Uh, man, we've had a little bit of rain lately, and... Uh, I think that's the prettiest, uh, prettiest that the mountains get. It's unbelievable because <laughs> the clouds seem to sink over the Smokies anyway. There's always clouds and smoky looks. But, uh, wow, the clouds get really low and hang in the valleys. And, uh, yeah. Can't see out the window sometimes. It's so it, it looks like fog, but it isn't fog. You're actually sitting in the cloud. Oh, no doubt. But what about hot days? So we're in... Down here, regular folk, we're in June. You know that, right? Oh, yeah, man. I think we are, too. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Hey, I tell you what, Ron. I am beginning to look forward to the title for every studcast. Once I get your notes in, to me, this one, like most of the last ones, had me asking as soon as I saw it. Episode number 253 is called Pole Title Matches in Both Territories. I don't really, I have an idea, but I'm not sure what that meant. Well, you know, last week, man, uh, uh, in southeastern Knoxville, uh, you remember Carson uh, wouldn't put up the Stomper's belt against Garvin unless Garvin wrestled both of them, him and the Stomper, mm-hmm. at the same time. So uh, Garvin won that match last week. So uh, this week, uh, Garvin was now the new champion, and uh, it was his turn to decide how he wanted to defend the belt, if he's going to have to defend it against the Stomper. And uh, so he comes up with this pretty unique idea that, uh, you know, we'd only done once or twice in the history of the, in the history of maybe the sport of wrestling. Uh, So uh, he comes up with this idea, man, for the first time and putting the championship belt on top of a 25 foot tall steel pole. (laughs) And the first man to climb up there, get the belt, bring it down and get it and, and keep it in the ring right. uh, is going to win it. So 
So that's why number 253 is called uh, pole title matches in both territories mm-hmm. because for the very first uh, uh, belt uh, on a pole title match in Knoxville is also going to be one, the very first one in Dothan, Alabama, in the Gulf Coast Territory. Uh, so, uh, and it's uh, going to be a main event in both of these uh, both of these territories. The mm-hmm. Gulf Coast belt was also going to be put on a 25-foot uh, tall pole uh, <laughs> because the belt had been held up in a match in Montgomery on Monday night. So yeah. on the following Friday, we're going to have the match for the belt and put the belt on the pole. It's going to be me against Bob Armstrong. Okay, that's pretty crazy because you got cash on one pole. You got a championship belt on another. So I don't know exactly how to say this, but your mind was pretty far out there, even back then compared to other bookers. So where do you get an idea like this? Where did you hear hear of this initially? Well, it came from uh, from a guy named Louis Tillette, who is a French-Canadian, and he actually wrestled for me, southeastern Knoxville, in my first year there as an owner. And uh, he was a booker. He was a really sharp mind, and uh, he was a booker in the Florida Territory in 1973 when me and Rob were both wrestling in Florida. And uh, so I brought him into Southeastern uh, when I first started there uh, because I needed a little help as a booker. And he was a great, great guy. And uh, and he was responsible for bringing in the great Mephisto, Frankie Kane, who was another great talent, worked for me in 1975. So I let Louis run some cities for me in West Virginia. He wanted to make a little extra money. I said, well, you can run some towns in West Virginia. We got a TV up there. And it was my first year in business. And uh, so I was I was happy to get as many towns running as I could. So it was there in uh, Bluefield, West Virginia, man, that I wrestled in my first ever pole match. And uh, and it was Louis Tillette's idea. It was a pole battle royal. That's what it was. <laughs> and it had a bag full of money. Uh, you know, it was a it was a cloth bag. Money was inside the bag, mm-hmm. and the bag of money was tied at the top of the pole. And the pole was about twenty five feet high. Uh, but this pole man was very thin. It was only about three inches thick. Uh, and and when I looked at it from the dressing room, my first thought was, it's not just thin, this is dangerous. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> What's that pole going to do with my 260 pounds on it or whatever? Wow. So, uh, so and then at the end of the match, I was actually the guy that won the match. I, when I climbed it, it was really unsteady, and it started whirling around in slow motion. The higher I went up, it started this little slow whirling around, you know. And uh, so, and I got afraid, man, about halfway up that this thing's going to snap in half or something bad's going to happen. They're going to send me head first down on the concrete, man. It's going to be, it's going to be a bad night, basically. So when I got to the top of the pole, I grabbed the cash, and I started back down, but when I started back down, the pole started to bend then. It wasn't just going around slowly. It started to bend over real slowly. And uh, I stayed right where I was because I was afraid, my, what's going to happen here now? So I just hung onto the pole, and thankfully it bent outward, away from the ring. And it bent right straight into the highway of the building between the two sections of ringside. So I saw it was going not going to go and land me in the crowd or something crazy, so I just held on for dear life, man, and it just kept slowly bending into this huge arch and then uh, got down almost to floor level and it suddenly stopped. But it was about my height when it stopped, so I just stepped off of it and walked to the dressing room with the money. 
And wow. I'm sure the fans thought that's probably the way the match was supposed to end. You know? But <laughs> so, it really scared me about pole matches. <laughs> yeah, that. So you rode the pole from 25 feet up down to the floor of the arena, just conveniently walked away with the money. All right, so was that your was that your first pole match, your last pole match? I mean, what about it? Well, that was my first pole match, but it wasn't my last. You know? Okay. Uh, and the last one that I had had was in the summer of 1976. It was in Locksville, uh, and it was a uh, – I had just turned babyface not too long before that. I started out as a heel there. I just turned babyface. And I was going at it pretty much every week during that time frame, summer of 76, against Don Carson and his peanut butter black glove, man. And and so I would finally, in July of that year, I finally, in one of those matches, removed Don Carson's black glove, and I left the ring with it, took it, took it with me to the dressing room. So the next day on TV, he demanded that I give his glove back to him, and I refused and said uh, I'd give him a chance to win it back. So uh, – and that's where the idea came from for the second pole match of my career. So I told him and the fans on TV that day hmm. that I was going to have them uh, bring in a 25-foot-tall steel pole, <laughs> and I was going to put the peanut butter glove on the top of it the next Friday night, mm-hmm. and the, whoever climbed the pole and came down with it could use it on the other guy. So uh, <laughs> so me and Carson went at it again the following Friday night, and, uh, and uh, the man who Climbed the pole and got the glove, was able to use it on his opponent. And uh, and he actually went up and got the glove. But when he came down, I took it away from him, and uh, I used it on him. And I bloodied him up. I figured out how to load it, and I bloodied him up, and I got the three count. And when I finished the match, I took the glove off, and he's laying there on his back. Uh, his fat belly's uh, sticking up in the air, and I just uh, <laughs> threw the old black glove down on his belly, and I went to the dressing room. Uh, that was the first sellout in the history of uh, in Southeastern's history in the Chilhowee Park Amphitheater. Wow! In fact, I think the amphitheater had more people in it than the Coliseum for that big event in the Coliseum. Holy cow! Wow! All right, I tell you what, we're off to a great start today, Stud. Two stories already, so two years. After the last Southeastern pole match, two very unique pole matches, both for the belts in each territory, are coming. It sounds like fans were going to really be getting a treat. And speaking of a unique treat, that's what fans are getting now. There's a transition for you on your red-hot ClassicContinentalWrestling.com streaming channel. Y'all, you got to check it out. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. You keep adding great new content weekly. So what's going on? What's new for the week? Well, man, there's a lot of new stuff on it, Dave. Uh, I've been working really hard to get things on it, to keep it growing. And, uh, and a lot of it's a lot of new ones that I give you just this week, uh, you know, and, and I'm determined, man, to give my streaming channel fans the very best. Uh, and I had the first prologue to my book. Brutus was on there. And, uh, and I, having no experience with recording an audio book, uh, after I listened to it myself, I wasn't happy with it. And, uh, you know, and I want nothing but the best for subscribers. You know, uh, ContinentalClassicWrestling.com, it's, it's really, really going fast. So I redid that first prologue. So now the opening uh, and the first prologue in the book is from in Africa, takes place in Africa, and the second in Australia. But uh, so now the opening African prologue has been redone. 
Uh, and the Australian prologue that follows it, uh, it's been done. And, uh, and the, the first chapter of the book is now done and available. They're all going to be available by Friday of this week. Uh, so in those audio chapters read by me are all go, all go, also going to become an audio book when I finally get finished with it. And, uh, and I hope fans on my streaming channel uh, uh, will appreciate each one of these. Uh, but, you know, because by getting near to hear the entire book, basically, they're mm-hmm. going to hear the entire book without having to purchase it. That's a pretty cool deal, I think. You know, for, oh, yeah, I think. And, it, and it's going to hear the audio version done by me. Yeah, v- very generous, interesting, and a unique idea for a wrestling streaming channel, Ron, for real. All right, so I know you got more stuff. What else is happening? Anything else new this week? Yeah, man, I got the fourth, the fourth uh, two-hour Stars of the Sports show, man. Uh, this one is with the legendary man, uh wonderful son of a gun, Bob the Bullet, Bob Armstrong himself. And it's going to be up on uh, June the 9th, uh, 2022. Uh, I think that's Friday of this week. And it's a it's a historic interview, man, I did with him four years ago. And I've had have added to it the more than 50 photos of him that appear as his tremendous life story, man, is being told. So actually, you listen to the story and the photos nonstop. And in my opinion, the photos <laughs> add to these original recordings. They greatly enhance them, man. It's amazing. Uh, and I'm very proud of these stars of the sports series, and they're just beginning. I got 30 more of them coming, man. Hmm. You know, I've, I've watched the first three the first three out there, Andre the Giant, Mankind Mick Foley, and Crazy Ron Wright, and I agree with you. The, the added photos are really priceless. It, it, it really adds to it a lot. What else, what else? Something else is new on there, too. What else you got? Well, by Friday, man, uh, Friday, uh, June the 10th, uh, the remainder of the Continental Wrestling Shows for the month of April, which is, uh, a, we're in April of 96 with those Continental TV shows. They're going to be on the channel, so we're going to fill them out, to put all the rest of the April 86 shows on there. And uh, plus, by early next week, the third episode of the Superstars of the Past series, man. Uh, we're going to be doing the star of uh, between 1900 and 1910, the star of the decade which is a guy named Frank Gotch, who was a phenomenal wrestler. And uh, he's going to be uh, the subject and the uh, wrestler of the decade for the Superstars of the Past series. Wow. And uh, many say Frank Gotch was the greatest American professional wrestler of all time. Wow. And, and after, his, after uh, putting his story together and seeing what <laughs> he did, I'm, I'm, I'm entitled to believe it. <laughs> Hey, I tell you what, you're on fire, stud. So you finished the third chapter in your upcoming book, The Real History of American Professional Wrestling. I guess you're going to be presenting its chapter soon on ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. And it sounds like we could just keep going here all day, but I'm kind of eager, if you don't mind, to hear about these pole matches, the main events in both Southeastern territories. So where do we ride to this week, stud? Well, man, we're in the summer, man, of 1978, uh, about 44 years ago from where we are right now. And it's the best time of year for wrestling all over the country, summertime, southeastern Knoxville. And it was having its its first June event ever in the Coliseum. Uh, you know, we'd never run matches in the summertime in the Coliseum. We're going to have this one in the Coliseum. We're going to have the entire month of June, all of them in the Coliseum. Uh, so the Coliseum kind of become the home of wrestling for uh, Knoxville fans. 
it was a tremendous card and it featured one of those pole matches for fans in that area and we're going to discuss all of that great card knoxville on friday june 2nd 1978 talk about the tv promoting that card the results of the matches of that card we'll talk about the attendance and uh, then we're going to ride into southeastern gulf coast and to another championship pole match and fans there have never seen any kind of pole match in the Gulf Coast. And they knew nothing about this type of match. So this one would be on the same night in Dothan, Alabama, as the one that's happening in Knoxville, 500 miles to the north. So southeastern Gulf Coast was putting up, uh, you know, there was a belt that had been held up in the Montgomery match. And we're going to put that pole, the hmm. southeastern, uh, the Gulf Coast uh, championship belt on top of the pole. I'd be facing Bob Armstrong, and uh, we'll talk about that entire card for that night. The mm-hmm. TV six days earlier promoting it, the results of that Dothan card, the attendance, and then we're going to follow up on the situation with the Mobile, uh, Alabama WKRG TV television station that we almost lost in the last episode, <laughs> and uh, then we're going to finish off with some information about all the new stars arriving in both the territories. <laughs> then if we got any time left, Dave, we're going to answer another learning tree question at the end of all this. Yeah, I just don't think that's going to be possible, Stud. I'm just going to nix it right now. <laughs> well, we're going to no, see, man. We'll see what happens, for real. All right, so it sounds like, obviously, another loaded stud cast. I can't wait to hear more of what happened from your discussion, because last week you kind of had your hat in your hand a little bit with the general manager of the Mobile TV station and some of the new stars arriving soon. So... I don't know about you, Stud, but I'm ready to ride into Tennessee. Let's go. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I am too, my man. So uh, let's, let's start with the card in Knoxville Coliseum, Friday night, June 2nd, 1978. Like I said, slightly more than 44 years ago. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, Steve Brody opened the night against Ron Wright. Tony Charles wrestled Don Carson. The great Malenko, who had failed to beat Ricky Gibson in the time limit draw from last week, as soon as that match was over, you know, and Malenko, had, uh, it was the first time in his since his arrival in Southeastern that he hadn't won every match outright. So he didn't like the fact that it was a draw, and he immediately challenged Gibson to a return match, but he wanted to have him stick a no-DQ clause on there. And Ricky Gibson, he, he had a lot of guts. He said, heck yeah, man, I'll take you up on it. So uh, that one's going to be the, on this card. Condry and Hickerson, you know, last week. They had won the Southeastern Tag Belts back from Robert and Jimmy Golden. Uh, obviously, they had a lot of help from their manager, Ron Wright, and uh, Wright refused to allow the former champions. Now that he had the belts back, and they did, that he wasn't going to give them a return match, but he said he would give them a six-man tag. They could pick themselves a partner, and that's what they did. Uh, Robert and Jimmy, they picked Bob Root, who hadn't been on the card in three weeks, to come back in as their partner. And the main event on this night, on this night, it was Ronnie Garvin, the new Southeastern champion, putting his belt on the line. And they did it by putting it on top of a 25-foot-tall pole attached to one of the four ring posts. And he was wrestling against the stomper managed by Don Carson. And the man who climbed the pole and got back down in the ring with the belt <laughs> was going to be the winner. <laughs> All right, so that's a pretty good card right there. So what happened on the TV Six days before this event. Well, as I remind everybody each week now, Dave, uh, you know, I wasn't there for either the Coliseum event or the TV show. 
So my description of both may be a little bit shorter than it used to be when I was there for these shows, working in Knoxville and in the in Gulf Coast uh, during the same time frame. Uh, but at this point, I'm down south, uh, Pensacola, living there, booking and overseeing southeastern Gulf Coast. So Robert said, told me, you know, we talked about these shows. He said the TV opening was with Les Thatcher and Ronnie Garvin, and uh, Garvin had a southeastern belt in front of him. He's sitting at the set, and the studio exploded when they saw that shot of him sitting there with the belt in front of him. It was one of the first times he'd been seen with the belt, as a matter of fact. And behind them was this huge still shot of Ronnie Garvin, high up in the air, man, uh, coming down <laughs> over a prone Don Carson, laying on his back, about to drop a knee in his throat. And the Mongolian stomper was nowhere to be seen in this shot. So uh, it was pretty plain that uh, uh, Gar Garvin had the belt and he had probably beaten Don Carson to get it. So uh, Les congratulated Garvin for his win. And in a very unusual two-against-one handicap match at that the night before, so Rob told me the director backed the video up about three minutes, and he let everybody see uh, how that great shot at the opening show came about. So uh, Rob said Garvin explained how he, how he had to accept the match Don Carson wanted the week before to even get a shot at tight. And now, since he was the champion, it was his turn to make the rules for a return championship match. Hmm. And he explained his idea about the pole match with the belt on it. And then he went to the ring and got himself another big win on TV, I'm sure, by jumping off the top rope in somebody's throat. <laughs> and uh, so the very popular then, Ricky Gibson, was, was in the second match uh, with the great Malenko sitting at the set with Les during the match. And uh, they both interviewed after their upcoming, about their upcoming no disqualification match the next Friday night. Uh, the one that Boris Malenko had asked him for. And so then the personality on this day, uh, Dave, was just really, really totally different, very unusual. It was done live, and it was done outside the studio with a handheld camera. And uh, we had brought, we every Friday night, we had set up late at night the ring for TV the next day. But when we brought in the pole, we were going to put the pole under the t inside the studio, but the pole was bigger, higher than the ceiling of the of the studio. <laughs> so having discovered that, I had them bring in the, the, the ring truck ring and set it up in the parking lot outside the studio and attach the pole to it outside the studio. So um, in the second ring, uh, you know, uh, set up out in the parking lot and uh, we had somebody take the belt out when uh, after Garvin was, was on the first match. And uh, got up on the pole and then and attached it to the top of the pole. So uh, so that ring had the pole attached to it, and the belt was already on top of it when Les and this uh, uh, cameraman go outside. Mm -hmm. So Les, you know, he, he basically had started it in studio, and uh, and then he had the camera follow him outside. He had the camera take shots from several different angles, uh, one even from inside the ring looking up at what the wrestler was going to see with the belt on top uh, the following Friday night. And it was extremely impressive, man, uh, because I got to see it in Dothan. That's why mm -hmm. I know how impressive mm -hmm. it was. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, uh, it looked like it was 40 feet tall. Wow. It was like, wow, it, it's amazing. <laughs> you know, and as a camera, as the video was taking place outside, 
you could hear the fans inside the studio reacting to the photos that were being taken, to the shots. They were oohs and ahs on the screen with mm-hmm. Les talking, even though he's outside, you could hear the fans <laughs> inside. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. Like I said last week, Ron, you, I mean, you don't miss much. I can only imagine what it had to look like. And you said that the fans, that's where they filed into the into the TV station. They had to walk right by it, right? Yeah. That was made. That's what really made it great. I yeah. mean, and, uh, and fans <laughs> at the TV station, there were there were just hundreds, literally hundreds of fans came. We could only yeah. seat about 150, maybe close to 200 if it was really packed. Yeah. And there might be five or six hundred that would be standing out there. Yeah. So yeah, they passed by that ring, and uh, they didn't know what the uh, matches were that were coming up. <laughs> right. So you can imagine what they were all thinking. Yeah, somebody's going to climb that, probably. Uh, duh. Okay, and hey, but. Anyway, to me, like the old saying, a picture's worth a thousand words. Boom, you had it right before their very eyes. So what was next on that TV? Well, Ron Wright brought out his new tag champions in the third match, Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson, for the next live match. And obviously, they got themselves another big win. They were a phenomenal team. And then uh, Robert, Jimmy, and uh, Bob Ruth all went to the set after they had their match. And uh, they watched a brief piece of that tag match uh, from the TV the week before where uh, Ron Wright got in the ring and his two boys held Rob and he pulled out his chisel and busted Rob with it. And uh, and then they also watched a second video of where Ron Wright had screwed him the night before. And uh, then they talked to Bob Roop, uh, both Rob and Jimmy. Rob said about how happy they were to have him back. And uh, they basically set up the six-man tag for the following Friday. Uh, last match on that show was managed Mongolian Stomper, managed by Carson. And uh, after the Stompers win, Carson and the Mongol were at the set with Phil Rainey, commentator, for the last interview. And Liss was outside with Ronnie Garvin in the ring with the pole attached to it and the belt on the top. So, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Les closed the show. Uh, and what a great interview that was, Ronnie being able to talk about uh, how how high that was and, <laughs> and uh he didn't know whether Mongols could climb. <laughs> it might be. It was going to be. He kind of set the set the tone for that event. <laughs> and then Les had a tremendous close. They closed the show from the ring outside the building with the cameraman standing right underneath the pole and taking a shot straight up underneath it. And uh, wow. so that TV made a statement of its own. <laughs> Oh, no doubt. So, I mean, we were used to seeing Garvin, uh, like, touching the lights in the building when he would launch himself off the top rope. But in this case, I mean, obviously, this sounds like another great TV, Ron. Having the pole outside the studio was a spectacular idea. So what happened the next Friday night in the Coliseum? Well, Ron White won over Steve Brody. Uh, Tony Charles and Don Carson wrestled to a 20-minute time limit draw. Uh, the great Malenko brought his Russian chain to the ring, man. Uh, but he wasn't allowed to bring it inside. The referee wouldn't allow him to bring it inside. So he took the chain and he threw it under the ring. And then he charged Ricky Gibson uh, real quick so that the bell got rung quickly. And uh, the chain's underneath the ring. And uh, so finally in this match, uh, Rob said that Gibson's down and pretty close to being beat without, uh, without uh, Malenko having to do anything more. But uh, Malenko left the ring, and he went under the ring and got the chain, and uh, and then he brought it back in. It was a no-DQ match, so the referee couldn't stop him from using it. 
and the fans got a taste, man, of why Southeastern had tried to stop Malenko for so long from having any Russian chain matches. Uh, wow, Rob said Malenko made a bloody mess of Ricky Gibson before he covered him, and he beat him for the win. So Malenko had been at that point uh, in Southeastern for about two months, and he had yet to get a Russian chain match since arriving. His attorneys and everybody had worked on it, and uh, I think he was finally going to get one the next week, but it was going to cost him some money, man. So Robert, Jimmy Golden, Bob Root won the six-man tag by disqualification against Condry, Hickerson, and Ron Wright, mm. and then the Southeastern Championship pole match started, which was the end of a uh, <laughs> and. Uh, and this one ended in a no contest decision. And uh, it was already a bloody match between the two of them before this happened. But finally, after they had been in there for a while, uh, they both tried to climb up. Then they both end up on the pole at the same time. And uh, Rob was watching it. And he said the pole started swinging back and forth. And uh, he said the crowd was just screaming. And terror, man. <laughs> so, you know, uh, they're twenty feet up, twenty-five feet up, and nothing but concrete below them. And uh, and he said, uh, all of a sudden, he said the belt fell off the top of the pole to the costume floor. And he says, uh, so he said both wrestlers came down off the pole and they went after the belt and they started fighting outside on the floor. And then that fight on the floor, Rob said, turned into a fight all over the arena. And um, they were both, Rob said, bleeding like crazy, and uh, neither one, nobody, neither of them left with the belt. So the title, obviously, was going to have to be held up until the next week, and uh, and we're going to bring it back again. Put it on the pole again, except <laughs> this time secure the pole a lot better, and also the belt, man, to make sure that uh, everything was going to be solidly mounted, man, the following Friday. I keep thinking of that phrase, you had one job. Your job was to tie the belt to the top of the pole. What happened? Anyway. <laughs> All right. That's crazy, Ron. The belt fell off the pole. Wow. Yep. There's only the third <laughs> pole match in Southeastern history, man. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, uh, and and it was only the third match, the third pole match by only about an hour. Because in Dothan, Alabama, 500 miles south, they were in central time. They were going to have a pole match about an hour after this one ended. So there seemed to be no other way, way around doing uh, what we did there in Knoxville because of what had happened. And uh, just make sure the belt was going to stay where it was supposed to the following Friday. All right. That's cool. All right. What about attendance on this one? After that TV, I bet you had a, a really big crowd. Yeah, it was. It was uh, 56, about 5,600 crazy fans. And, uh, Rob said that's what they were. And he said, especially when they were watching that poll battle royal said that the, it was it was uh, it was frightening for everybody so the the string man and uh, at this point Knoxville had a string of 5,000 plus attended nights of 14 in a row in the Coliseum which uh, for the one of the smallest for the city the size of Knoxville there was no city in the world that was going to do 5,000 uh, for 14 events straight in a row. Uh, it, it was it was a fantastic record that was being set there. Wow! So before we leave Southeastern today, Dave, uh, I, I want to talk about uh, uh, about the fans uh, and what would happen in each week between my brother and I. 
since we're both running these two territories at that time. And we spoke every Sunday. We talked about everything, lots of things. Uh, and, uh, you know, like he mentioned, how big the crowds were still at TV and how loud and excited those fans were. Uh, he talked about, we talked about my recent arrest in Mobile and, uh, and how I had solved the Mobile TV situation, I felt like, and uh, my feeling the future there was secure. And we talked about the size of the houses in both territories. Mm -hmm. Talked about anything unusual or we felt was important. And, uh, and often uh, we talked about the swapping of talent for short periods of time and even for long term. So, and speaking of talent, uh, mm -hmm. Robert had the United States karate champion, Ron Slinker, who'd been waiting for almost a year to get into Southeastern starting the very next week. Two weeks after that, he had Kevin Sullivan wow. going to be there. And, uh, and two weeks after Kevin Sullivan, you're going to see the return of Joe LaDuke for, for about two weeks. Wow. All right, so you guys were just continuing to load up on talent. It seems like Southeastern Knoxville was kind of holding its own, even without you. Bob Armstrong and several others with you were down south. I mean, did you expect that they were going to be okay? I mean, you knew you had good talent, though. Yeah, yeah, but but I didn't know what to expect, man, to be honest with you. you know, yeah. Obviously, Southeastern Knoxville was in very good shape and it would had been in the middle of a great run for going on two years man we had been drawing some fantastic crowds not just in knoxville but all in the surrounding towns too so i was much more worried at this point man about what was to come in southeastern gulf coast how much do you credit your brother rob who is handling everything he was really like the boss of that market because he was uh he was the booker yeah he was in control of what where it went, man, and, and the size of the crowds and uh, and what was going to happen. And uh, he was obviously doing a pretty darn good job. Like I said, I'm more concerned at this point about <laughs> Gulf Coast, man. Right, yeah. <laughs> what yeah. I'm going to need to do. Yeah, so at least you had the confidence that hey, Rob's got this in, in Knoxville, and i got to make this thing work down here. So that's, that's cool. I can understand that. Hey, this is a good place for a break, stud. Let's do that. We're going to get uh, get a good idea of where Southeastern Gulf Coast was headed with a pole match of their own in the second half of this studcast. You got that to look forward to. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com is streaming everything that you see on YouTube, Southeastern Rewind, and more. You got to check it out, ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. This studcast will continue in a moment right here. Hey, StudCast fans, it's David Summers. Ron appreciates every listener and all StudCast fans everywhere. His audience has grown steadily in the almost five years he's been telling his family's life story about the sport we all love. He always says, without the fans, we have nothing. The stud is working hard every day to provide the best in wrestling entertainment for you at ClassicContinentalWrestling.com from his past territories to his new projects. And he asked me to take this time today to let everyone know how much your support means to him. Thanks, and God bless you all from the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. All right, welcome back in once again, David Summers with the Tennessee Stud on another Studcast. So we're in the middle of another great one, Stud. So where does the rest of this ride begin? Well, we're headed, man, Dothan, Alabama on Friday night, June the 2nd, 1978. Uh, that city, man, has got a growing momentum. It has had an increase in its attendance for the last 10 events in a row. And uh, so, uh, and, and because of that, uh, it's going to, for its first time ever, get that fifth match to 
that's added to the cart. Uh, that's a good sign that uh, it's it's a, it's earning a bigger a bigger cart. So uh, Greg Peterson is going to be against uh, Eddie Sullivan, <clears throat> the wrestling pro Tarzan Baxter. Uh, is going to be against the old time returning Gulf Coast star. Believe it or not, gorgeous George Jr. is making his way south. He's going to be down there in the Southern Territory. <laughs> uh, special challenge tag match. Uh, David Schultz and Eddie Mansfield are going up against Charlie Cook and Mike Stallings. Uh, Gulf Coast Tag Championship match. This one's going to be best two out of three falls. The champions, the assassins, managed by Billy Spears, are going to be wrestling against Robert Gibson and Rip Tyler. And then the main event, for the first time ever in Gulf Coast history anywhere, a first for Southeastern Gulf Coast uh, as well, uh, this, this is going to be a Gulf Coast Championship match for the belt that was held up, and it's going to be putting that belt on the top of a 25-foot-high steel pole. <laughs> and the first man to get down and stand up in the ring with it is going to be the next champion. Wow. And that's me against Bob Armstrong in that one. All right, so five matches in all, a Southeastern Gulf Coast Tag Championship and a first-time-ever pole championship match. That's going to be a pretty big one, Ron. So what was the uh, what, what was on TV six days earlier, setting it all up? Well, it opened with the first Southeastern Gulf Coast video from Montgomery, Alabama, which was recorded the Monday before the TV was made. And it was a very important to get Montgomery some exposure, man. Uh, it's going to be a major town for us. And uh, its, it's crowds was growing. And, and uh, because they were growing, this exposure, man, was uh, just uh, – just what they needed there. And uh, and it was a great shot of that beautiful Montgomery Civic Center, man, that uh, we wrestled in there. And uh, we we needed that. The city needed it to increase its growth and uh, jump up there to where some of the other towns were. So uh, I opened up the show with Charlie Platt at the set, and we watched the championship match from Montgomery, where my Gulf Coast belt had, in, had been held up. And obviously, uh, me being a heel, you know, I complained about the sorry refereeing and uh, how the referee had uh, changed the decision uh, about my winning the match after he had presented me with the belt. Right. You know, I mean, I said, then, you know, how the heck does that happen, Charlie Platt? And, uh, and then I really got into the meat of the subject. And, and that I was wondering, you know, I asked Charlie, uh, what crazy Gulf Coast wrestling idiot got the idea of putting a championship belt on top of a 25-foot-tall steel pole, man. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then having two guys fight to get to the top first to see who's going to be champion. I said, Where, where's the wrestling and something like that, Charlie Platt? <laughs> Why do you call that a wrestling match? <laughs> what is this? About? What's this all about? So, uh, and then I didn't ever give him a chance to answer that question. So I told him, you know, uh, no matter what the contest was, that I was a bigger and better man than the dishonorably discharged Marine, Bob Armstrong. That <laughs> <laughs> I was going to get my belt back around my waist where it belonged and that I couldn't wait to see all those rednecks and idiots out in that part of the country stealing the money that they had to to get to the ticket and to, to, to come see their over-the-hill bodybuilder get his butt beat. 
<laughs> I wow. Was, I was really rolling. I was having myself a good time. <laughs> so, yeah. So then Charlie asked me if I'd ever been in that type of match before, a pole match, and you know. And uh, then it gave me a chance to call him an ignorant redneck for asking a question like that. <laughs> and that I'd been wrestling all over the world and every kind of match imaginable. And it didn't make any difference what kind of match this redneck promotion would put me in. I was going to win simply because I was a winner. <laughs> and that I wasn't afraid of heights and I could mm -hmm. climb like a fighter jet. <laughs> Hello. Okay. <laughs> That I'd beat Mr. Goody Two Shoes if I had to climb 50 feet. You know, and, uh, <laughs> and I said, people like him, uh, you know, they never risen to great heights like me. <laughs> and, and they were afraid to climb the ladder to success. But so that's a 25 foot high steel pole. So uh, I, let, I got up and left the set immediately, man. And the <laughs> studio crowd, they didn't like any of it. Boy, I got a great boost. They, they, they couldn't have booed me any louder. It was wonderful being a heel. It was uh, it was sweet to the ears. It must be. Sounds like you, after about three months at this point, were getting your heel attitude back down. All right. So, who was in the first TV match? Well, I can tell you, man. He didn't get a very good reception either from the crowd. <laughs> he hadn't been in that part of the country in years, but he still had his heat. So uh, when gorgeous George Jr. came out of that dressing room, <laughs> uh, that, that boy, that crowd, uh, I thought they were going to do as bad as they did to me. It was like, wow. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and he was obviously there making his move, Knoxville mm -hmm. South, man, uh, and down to his old stomping grounds. He had a real history with Gulf Coast wrestling. So uh, speaking of stomping, man, that's exactly what he did to his opponent, too, in that first match. He stomped his way into their hearts. <laughs> so they booed him again on the way out as bad as they did coming in. And the second segment opened with Charlie Cook and Mike Stallings watching the video. It was their last encounter. It was the last encounter between Charlie Cook and David Schultz, huh. most recent one, and Eddie Mansfield that came down to the ring again, which he had done on a couple of other occasions, and he got involved. But for the first time, Mike Stallings came down to the ring and he got involved himself. So, uh, so they were this, these two teams, uh, Schultz and Mansfield, were in an upcoming tag against uh, Cook and um, Stallings. So they left the set, uh, the two of them, <clears throat> with loud cheers from the studio crowd. Uh, they, Charlie Cook especially, was really strongly over, and Mike Stallings was getting there. And then uh, those cheers from the crowd, man turned instantly to booze, man, because the next people out of the dressing room door were Schultz and Mansfield for the second match. And, uh, boy, they demolished two young guys. <laughs> I felt sorry for those guys. I mean, they just wow. pulverized them. And, uh, and then uh, both those two teams made interviews for the second interview and then the personality profile. And it was almost an exact replica of the one in Knoxville that, oddly <laughs> enough, was being recorded at almost the same time. Both of those shows were being recorded at about the same time. Wow. So uh, so Bob Armstrong was in this one with Charlie Platt, and they went outside the studio, and Bob was in the ring, and they they saw the setup there. The, they got the shots, the real, real effective shots of the height of the pole, and uh, it, it, it went down pretty much as Rob has described, the one went down in Knoxville. 
And then Bob tore into me, man. Uh, and I guess he got very upset <laughs> about my comment earlier about his dishonorable discharge from the Marines. Yeah. And, uh, and I think he actually got <laughs> mad about it, for real. Ah. So mad that, that he at one point, while he was standing in the ring talking to Charlie Platt about the pole and the height and all that, he, he just kind of uh, he put his arm on the slapped Charlie's back and he said, you know, I want to show everybody just a, just what kind of advantage I have uh, since I was a Marine, he said. Mm -hmm. And he bolted from the middle of the ring, man. He shot up on the top rope and he went hand over hand, 25 feet up. Didn't even use his legs to the top of the pole. Oh, wow. He touched the belt up there and he came right back down and got down in the ring. Wow. <laughs> and he said, can Ron Fuller do that? Like in a matter of <laughs> seconds. Wow. Okay. Oh, it was unreal. I mean, I watched it from inside the studio. I was like, son of a gun. <laughs> Whoa. Because uh, Bob was so strong, man. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, so they, you know, just as they had done in Knoxville when Ronnie Garvin was in the ring and making comments, the Dothan studio erupted when they saw him climb that pole. Mm -hmm. And you could hear all that as this was going on outside. So, so these two personality profiles, man, on two stations 500 miles apart, uh, they were going to make a great impact, man, everywhere they were seen. I'll hmm. tell you that. So wow. Billy Spears and his assassins with their southeastern Gulf Coast tag belts joined Charlie Platt to open the third segment of the TV. Uh, they watched the winning of the tag belts from the Gibson brothers on TV from a couple of weeks earlier when they injured Ricky Gibson. And Billy Spears, uh, he was doing a great job with his team, man, and those, his team was really getting hot. A lot of people were getting over there. Business was really picking up, too. So they were booed, man, as badly when they left the set as the team of Robert Gibson and Rip Tyler were cheered coming into the ring. So and uh, they were over, man, uh, especially Robert Gibson. Rip Tyler was getting there, and they made short work, man, of their opponents. Assassins and Spears, they split the interview time with Gibson and Tyler uh, at the end of that third match. And the uh, Obviously, the focus for the interview was on that best two out of three fall. Most unusual, rare, rare two out of three fall match coming up six nights later for the belts. And then Bob Armstrong tore the house down, man, to close out the show. And then he split the last interview uh, with me. I did mine from the set. He did his from outside the studio in the ring with Charlie Platt and the pole. And uh, we finished this TV show the same way Knoxville. Uh, had Charlie Platt standing in the ring outside the TV station, cameraman shooting that shot straight up the steel pole to where the belt was mounted. Uh, it was uh, like a duplicate <laughs> show in a way, but uh, totally different talent. Wow. So I think, you know, Southeastern had made a statement that day to, fan, to fans, basically, all the way from the Gulf of Mexico almost to Ohio. That's where our television stations were covering. Uh, practically uh, close to 700, 800 miles. Uh, and we create not just great matches, but unique ones, man, that fans were going to enjoy for years to come. You know, it's one of the few, maybe only split territory to ever be successful. And on that day, we had a couple of the best TV shows we've probably ever done. Wow. All right. You are definitely cooking today, Stud, or should I say you were, you were making history back on the last Saturday of May, 1978. So what happened six days later in Dothan? 
Well, Gordon Stewart Jr., he beat the pro. Uh, David Schultz and Eddie Mansfield won over Charlie Cook and Mike Stallings. The Assassins and Billy Spears kept the Southeastern Gulf Coast tag belts. And, uh, you know, I I did not see Garvin and Stomper's pole match. You know, I don't know how that went. But I do know how the match went with Bob Armstrong. It was one of the easiest matches I'd ever had. And, I mean, every time either one of us started climbing the pole, the building just stood up. It was amazing, man. If you just started up the pole, everybody got on their feet. Uh, so Bob Armstrong, he won the Gulf, the Gulf Coast Championship. Uh, and he won it. Uh, I'll tell you how he won it, man. Uh, I piledrived him, and then I climbed uh, to the top of the pole, and I got the belt, and I slid down the pole uh, and I to the top rope, standing on the top rope, had my back to him. That was my big mistake. I had my back turned to him, and he regained his feet by the time I got back down to the rope, top rope, and he got to the corner of the ring where the pole was mounted, and, uh, and then uh, <laughs> he waited on me to turn around. And when I did, he just reached up there and knocked the belt out of my hands. <laughs> then he reached up there and slammed me off the top rope. <laughs> wow. And then he went over and picked up the belt. He was inside the ring. He raised it over his head, and the building exploded. Wow. <laughs> it was pretty good. And then, you know, then he was declared the new Gulf Coast champion by the announcer. Yeah. You could hear the popping mobile, I'm sure. Yeah, I bet you could. <laughs> All right. How'd you do in attendance? Uh, for the first time ever, Southeastern Gulf Coast history, we went over 3,000 fans, man. So we had doubled the crowd in Dothan from the opening night with Andre the Giant at around 1,500 in three months to 3,000. So uh, when we added the Knoxville House to this 3,000 that we drew in Dothan, we had almost 9,000 fans in one night for Southeastern for the company, which was a one-night record. Wow. Okay. So you said earlier, you might have an update on that deal with the WKRG TV general manager to keep Southeastern Gulf Coast on the air there. So what happened in that situation? Well, you know, CP and I, CP persons, that was the general manager. We had had a couple of conversations uh, after that one where he finally said, we'll put you back on in three weeks. And, uh, and he confirmed the date that we're going to be returning is September. I mean, it's June 17th, Saturday, June 17th, mm -hmm. 1978, back on his station. And he said also, since we had this billboard by starting that week, that he was going to give us 50 plugs a week starting that week until the billboard buyer by ended six weeks later. Sweet. So he sweetened the deal. <laughs> yeah. All right. Sounds like everything was back solid. So what about the, the new talent? coming to southeastern Gulf Coast? Well, one of them, Gorgeous George Jr., he is already there, man. He'd already arrived down there in the southeastern Gulf Coast. Uh, Ricky Gibson was going to be coming back full-time in two weeks. And Tony Charles is going to be there by the end of June. So uh, we're bringing in some horses. Oh, no doubt. All right, it looks like things were really about to explode business-wise. So I think, I think, can you believe it? We have time for another learning tree question today. The Ole Anderson of Twitter asked, so if you're, if you're a green heel and Bob Armstrong is your boss, do you still call the match versus him? 
<laughs> well, that's a good one. I mean, this guy's got to be a worker. <laughs> He's got to have been in the ring before. Uh, so, uh, Ole Anderson, uh, boy, that's good. <laughs> I worked with Ole many times, and uh, gosh, I never enjoyed any of them. <laughs> he was a bad dude. Yeah. You know, so, uh, so uh, I guess uh, uh, Mr. Anderson here, uh, I wouldn't recommend it. I wouldn't recommend uh, that you try to call the match with him if you're a green heel. Uh, you know, being a heel or a babyface, it, it takes a long time to figure out how to call a great match. Uh, that didn't happen, man, until you'd been in the ring for years. And every every season heel uh, couldn't do it properly every night. I mean, guys that had been in there, sometimes they couldn't call a good match every night either. So... <laughs> If you were a green heel, say even if you were as good as a guy like Arn Anderson is going to become, mm -hmm. uh, you were doing well to get away with calling one high spot during a match. <laughs> and a high spot call in a match was, you know, uh, <laughs> you'd get a headlock, you'd get a headlock, uh, get a headlock uh, on somebody, and then you'd just say, uh, uh, one tackle, drop down, leapfrog, drop kick. Right? Wow. If yeah. you got that in, you know, uh, and you're in the ring with a guy like Bob Armstrong and you're a green guy, uh, you'd be darn lucky, man, <laughs> if that even happened. So, wow. they, you know, and the experienced baby faces, uh, you know, he was always called the match, but he, experienced baby faces never let a young heel call the match unless they had total confidence in this kid, man, you know, against in the guy, you know, and very few people know it, but great referees. There were so many great referees that could actually sometimes call matches as well as a heel could. Ooh. That would call the match while you were in the ring and, and you'd be in a headlock. They'd tell you what to do next. They'd call the match for you. <laughs> so uh, most people don't know that, but referees were so important. So uh, uh, my direct answer to your question, Ole Anderson of Twitter, is <laughs> <laughs> so if you were a young heel, uh, you might talk to Bob about the match before it started. But when you're in the ring with a guy like Bob Armstrong, uh, you learn best by just listening. Oh, so just mouthing off and a bunch of talk is not going to help. Oh, oh, oh no, no, no! It's it's going to yeah. get you bumped big time. Yeah, yeah I bet. I <laughs> and, bet. And that, I and that's at least that's the least it's going to get you. Yeah, I can't imagine being in that situation. Amazingly, Ryan, I don't know how you do it, but these studcast. They seem to get better every week. So another awesome one in the books. Hey, folks, on Facebook, become friends with Ron. You can only do it by going to his Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud Facebook page. Like him and follow him there, and you automatically become friends with a legend. On Twitter, follow him at Ron Fuller Welch. The website, visit the stud on his tremendous website, tnstud.com. You'll find great videos, a photo gallery, every studcast ever done. 43 super studcaster there, too. Shop the stud store for all kinds of souvenirs, personally autographed photos, the classic Continental Video 5-pack, and his thrilling line novel, Brutus. Southeastern Rewind on YouTube is still full of great shows and information about the streaming channel. Check out ClassicContinentalWrestling.com, Ron's fantastic streaming channel. 
It's all there, and it always will be. The third superstars of the past series with Frank Gotch will be added soon to Abraham Lincoln and Martin Farmer Burns. April 1986 Continental TV shows added this week. 23 USA TV shows. 32 stud stories. Four stars of the sport now with Andre the Giant, Mankind Mick Foley, legendary Ron Wright, and Bullet Bob the Bullet Armstrong with hundreds of new photos added. you got to check it out. Three documentaries. Wildcat Wendell Cooley, world premiere of Tony Anthony's Dirty White Boy, plus a tremendous two-hour special of Mongolian stomper matches, and three Brutus readings by the end of this week. Man, that's a lot. Well over 105 hours of old-school wrestling entertainment now, and it's only the beginning. Subscribe now at ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. Only $4.99 per month, $39.99 per year. It is fast becoming the best old-school streaming site on the planet. Don't miss this special offer. you got to check it out right now. For a limited time, get a free one-week trial on ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. All right, so where do we ride next week, Stud? Well, Southeast of Knoxville, man, uh, it's going to continue its great run. Obviously, they have got it all rolling. And the Coliseum is going to be hosting a triple main event card. Uh, one of those matches is going to be a return of that pole match for the belt. Uh, there's going to be a six-man Texas death tag match. And Boris Malenko's first Russian chain match is going to take place. Uh, plus, the TV we'll be talking about to promote that card. We'll be talking about the results of that card and the attendance of that event. And uh, then uh, Southeastern Gulf Coast is beginning to start a growth spurt of historic proportions, man. This territory is going to catch on fire. An explosion. It's going to be an explosion, man, at the box office. Uh, and that's going to bring <laughs> with it a series of riots too, in one uh -oh. of the most dangerous territories <laughs> in history, man. Wow, it's going to get big crowds and dangerous ones at that. So... Um, uh, there's going to be uh, there's going to be a lot happening in southeastern Gulf Coast, and uh, we're going to touch on uh, many of the cities in that one next week. We'll cover that Dothan card, TV promoting it, the results of that card, and the attendance. Time permitting, we're going to have another learning tree question to answer. And uh, I just want to thank everyone, man, for your continued support out there of everything I do. Uh, I so much appreciate all you fans. Please take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This Studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.